This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. I look at part of my role is I've come here to chew bubblegum and get stuff done. And we're all out of bubblegum. Like, let's start getting some stuff done. Now, we have seen the passage of the American Rescue Plan. We have seen passage of this bipartisan infrastructure bill. But you cannot hear that long list of things that have passed out of the House and haven't moved in the Senate and not say, well, let's go. Let's let's get some of this stuff across the finish line, hey? Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Libro FM. My name is Nate. I am your host here in the resplendent, gorgeous, it feels good to be home, Moonyard Studios here in snowy North Tacoma. We're here today for a conversation with one of our favorite guests, Representative Kilmer. He is the congressperson from the 6th District, which is most of Tacoma and also the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, although redistricting, I, let's talk about maps at some point. And so, uh, Derek, welcome to the show. Great to be back with you, Nate. Good to see you, too. It's good to see you as well. Uh, you have one of the most interesting jobs in the world. And I often think about how the United States has this giant population of 330 million people and only 435 House members. And so there's a lot on your shoulders in a given time. Uh, we're essentially at the halfway point, the midterm mark, of the 117th Congress. And I'm just wondering, what is your perception of the job that Congress has done in this term so far? I guess, uh, you know, one, a lot done and a lot still to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's worth thinking about where we were a, a year ago, you know, as we as as we went into 2021. You know, you, you were looking at articles about food banks that were facing record demand, um, you know, extraordinary housing instability, a bunch of our local employers really on their heels kids in virtual school, not in in-person school. Um, we had not yet had the widespread rollout of vaccines. Mm -hmm. And um, not to mention the fact that Donald Trump was our president and uh, all that transpired at the beginning of 2021, including the events of January 6th. So if you sort of zoom forward, you saw early in 2021, the passage of the American Rescue Plan which seems like a long time ago, but was actually a really big deal, right? It meant that a bunch of our local employers got some help to keep the lights on, our, our local restaurants and our, you know, local theaters and, and our small businesses that were really, really struggling got a lifeline as a consequence of that American Rescue Plan. You saw the child tax credit um, expanded and According to economists, that cut childhood poverty in our country nearly in half. Uh, you saw a big influx of funds as part of the American Rescue Plan um, to get schools back open and in-person instruction. I can tell you there are two um, Kilmer kids that are very <laughs> excited about being in in-person school. You know, you saw a tremendous amount of resources to 
or community health centers to get people vaccinated. You know, and you went from, you know, literally almost nobody in our country vaccinated to um, now a couple hundred million people vaccinated. So that that's a big deal. The other big thing that you saw move this last year was the infrastructure bill, um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And we can talk more about that if you want, but there's a bunch to that, roads and bridges and transit and water systems and ports and broadband. And I can literally kind of travel with you around my district and, and talk about how that benefits people in different ways. I was just down in Aberdeen looking at a project for the port there's a massive increase in funding for ports and for small ports as a consequence of the passage of the infrastructure bill. I was out on the Olympic Peninsula where unfortunately, you know, there are far too many communities that don't have broadband access. You know, and we learned over the course of this pandemic that access to the internet is not just about, you know, whether you can watch Squid Game on Netflix, which I haven't, but I hear it's bonkers. Oh, it's great. Um, you, you know, the, 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 you know, it's, can your kid, keep learning if school's gone virtual? Can you keep operating your business? Um, can you have that telehealth appointment? And for far too many of the folks that I represent, they can't. So that's a really big deal. I was out on the coast uh, with the state DOT looking at a project where a road had literally collapsed. There was a landslide and we're, there's, a, there's funding for um, resiliency projects. And we're going to see, particularly in our coastal communities, more and more issues related to the climate crisis. And so that's a big deal. So, you know, I guess as I think about it, there's been a tremendous amount of progress in terms of combating the pandemic um, uh, and, and sort of putting out some of these fires. There's been progress in terms of trying to get the economy moving through this infrastructure investment, which you know, a lot of that, you and I were talking before you pressed record, um, a lot of that money hasn't flowed yet, but right. as it begins to flow, we're going to see a real benefit to the people that I represent. Now, having said all that, there's still a whole bunch that needs to get done. You know, there's bills that have passed out of the House that haven't moved in the Senate. And I have a sense of um, impatience because I want to see progress made on behalf of the folks I represent. It's 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 interesting to think about what happens when Democrats take power in Congress and what they try to implement versus what Republicans implement when they take power and how, and so you're, you're a policymaker, not a strategist. And so something that like occurs to me is that when Republicans get in power, one of the first things they do is push through tax cuts and those tax cuts always benefit the wealthy much more, but they do create a tangible benefit for lower income workers. So they see an immediate impact of the policy. When Democrats get in power, they oftentimes kind of seize and look for systemic change. We're going to reform the healthcare system. We're going to build infrastructure. But that stuff has a long tail. So by the time the policy is actually implemented and starts taking effect, the midterms, whatever has happened, and there's been like, people are like, there's been no change. And so like, like I think about Obamacare, right, or the Affordable Care Act. It gets passed, and then before it's actually been implemented, and the benefits start to sorry start to come to fore. There we go. Uh, the Republicans have taken control of the House, and then in many ways, the Republicans are around taking credit for it. Like you've seen your GOP colleagues taking credit for things in the in the bill they voted against for infrastructure, in the same way the Affordable Care Act. I, I, I ask all that. I just wonder. How cognizant are you and how cognizant is the caucus on the idea that many of the things that are being pursued are long-term things that aren't delivering maybe like an immediate impact that would have a political benefit as well? 
Well, I think it's a mix. The, you know, you saw with the American Rescue Plan, predominantly things that had an immediate impact. That's true. In the Build Back Better Act, there are a lot of those things that, and again, the Build Back Better Act hasn't passed into law yet, but there's a bunch of stuff that has a long tail, right? There's substantial, substantial investments in combating the climate crisis, which over the long haul will help both economically and environmentally, but may not, you know, someone may not wake up the next morning saying, you know, thank God for the climate investments in the American, uh, in, in the Build Back Better Act. I think they're really important. Um, there are some things in the Build Back Better Act that have uh, a more immediate impact, including things like the child tax credit, which people are seeing benefit from. You know, the 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 most common use of funds from the child tax credit um, uh, is for food. Mm-hmm. You know, when people get the child tax credit, they spend it on food and on housing. That's what the what the data tell us, and so that has an immediate benefit. Um, there are some other uh, uh, components of the Build Back Better Act. You know, so much of the attention in the media has been on inflation. And mm-hmm. one of the things I think is important to recognize is, so that's why we have a plan to reduce costs for people. The Build Back Better Act is a plan to reduce energy costs through these climate investments, to reduce health care costs, by expanding some of the protections under the Affordable Care Act, by allowing Medicare to negotiate for prescription drugs to lower the cost of uh, pharmaceuticals, um, to uh, lower housing costs by making the most significant investment in affordable housing in American history, um, uh, by making investments in childcare. I cannot tell you, Nate, how many working parents and in particular working moms I've talked to have really felt sidelined because they cannot find accessible, affordable childcare. And the Build Back Better Act helps with that. So a lot of those things I think will have immediate benefit. We just got to get them passed. Well, and so I guess here's the thing is, is I am more informed than the average person on these issues. Like I I follow this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I understood all those things were components of the act. And so yeah. a lot of the coverage that we have gotten and from it's from from media, but also members of Congress has been about should the act have been severed from the infrastructure bill? And that's been like the progressive like fight. It should not have been passed together. But we actually don't get a lot of conversation about what's in the bill. Why are we I'm saying we I'm not a member of I'm not a member of Congress, but like we share a political ideology. Why have we not done a as good a job as you're doing right now communicating what's actually in the bill? Like, I feel like what we see in conversation is, will Mansion support Build Back Better? Will Cinema support Build Back Better? But nothing actually knows what the components of Build Back Better are. And the components they do know are quite popular. It's like, it's like with the Affordable Care Act. It's like the individual components of the act actually pull quite well. The whole act as a whole is less popular. Well, I, I think some of this is we have a 24-hour media landscape that covers the, I was going to say day-to-day negotiations. It's more like minute-to-minute negotiations. Sure. And sometimes we lose the forest through the trees as a consequence of that. You know, in, in my role, I've tried to visit every city council, uh, rotary club, high school, um, chamber of commerce, labor hall, and walk through some of these components just like I just did with you yeah. 
and some other stuff too. You and I were talking about before I hopped on, I, I, I introduced a bill called the Recompete Act, which is a bill that's, fo- that's focused on helping communities that have faced persistent economic distress. And I, I, I represent a lot of those communities that have struggled for a long time. And we have a pilot version of the Recompete Act in the Build Back Better Act so that you can have some prolonged, flexible economic support for those communities so that they can make investments in affordable housing, so that they can make investments in economic development. You know, I was down in Aberdeen right before the holidays. You know, 90% of their landmass is in the floodplain. You know, if they got some flexible funds from the federal government, they would probably use it to fix that because they haven't been able to drive affordable housing development mm-hmm. or um, economic development without fixing that. You know, if you're uh, out in rural Clallam County, they would probably use some flexible funds to uh, expand internet access, right? And so different communities have different needs. And one of the components of the Build Back Better Act is is my bill to try to do that. And so um, you will never hear that on cable news, sure. right? You, you, to, to my chagrin. Now, interestingly enough, I did get invited on Fox News last month and they did ask about it. So I, I should give them credit. You, you may have heard once about that on cable news, but, um, you know, it's something that... W- we need to, uh, I think every um, member of Congress needs to do a better job of articulating, here's how this is going to make your life better. If you're worried about increasing costs, this is why we have a bill to reduce health care costs, to reduce child care costs, to give you a tax break um, uh, uh, the, uh, under the child tax credit, um, to reduce housing costs. All of these are components of the Build Back Better Act. Yeah. The last time you were on, we kind of checked through a laundry list of things that had passed in the House and were like languishing on then majority Leonard McConnell's desk. Uh, the United States, much to my chagrin, is not a parliamentary democracy. Nancy Pelosi is not the prime minister. Uh, but I think it's worth having that conversation again. Essentially, the House has passed a bunch of progressive legislation that is not done on arrival, but isn't moving forward in the Senate for filibuster or whatever reasons. What are some of the things, because and, and this is the thing is like, I don't think the average listener is attuned to the policy process to know this. What are some of the things that have been passed in the House that are just sitting in the Senate waiting to be voted on? Well, there's a bunch, unfortunately. Um, HR1 is a big democracy reform bill that includes campaign finance reform, and voter right protections um, and ethics reforms. Uh, it's HR one uh, the for the people act, and it's HR one for a reason because a lot of the inability to make progress on some of these other matters is hamstrung by broken politics. And uh, I'm a sponsor of that bill. That bill has passed the House, and uh, to use your phrase, has languished so far in the Senate. HR uh, four is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Um, I think protecting access to the ballot box and the right to vote is fundamental. I, before he passed, got to visit Selma uh, with John Lewis and be part of uh, civil rights pilgrimage. We would cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge where he'd been beaten and tear gassed for advocating for the right to vote. And here we are in now 2022, and we are still fighting that fight. And that bill, I'm a sponsor of, it has passed the House and so far hasn't moved in the Senate. Um, providing a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. Um, I sat down on Martin Luther King Day a couple of years back with a group of dreamers uh, in Tacoma. And um, uh, 
you know, it was just heartbreaking to hear these young people who are Americans in every way, except on paper, sure. who are living in fear of getting deported. You know, that dream, the Dream and Promise Act has passed the House. I'm a sponsor of it. It hasn't yet moved in the Senate. Um, a, a couple bills focused on gun violence prevention, um, including something our state has already done, um, universal background checks for the purchase of a weapon. That's, in my view, common sense legislation that's passed the House that has not yet passed the Senate. Um, obviously, a lot of concerns around um, what the Supreme Court may do with regard to reproductive health care for, um, uh, uh, for women in our country. Um, there's a bill to codify Roe versus Wade uh, in statute. That bill was passed the House. I'm a sponsor of it. It has not yet moved in the Senate. The Equality Act. Uh, which provides something, again, our state already does, um, which is non-discrimination protections for the LGBTQ plus community so that people don't face discrimination in housing or employment or anything else based on who they are or who they love. Uh, I'm a sponsor of that. That bill has passed the House and yet not yet moved in the Senate. There are some other bills that haven't gotten as much attention, a bill to... Um, uh, empower workers to more easily organize a uh, form a union and to bargain with their employers. A bill called that's called the Pro Act. Um, uh, uh, um, a bill to um, establish some additional protections for pregnant workers yeah. so that they um, are uh, provided with reasonable accommodations in the workplace. Um, well, those, those are minimum wage those are too, right? I'm sorry. There was also a minimum wage increase bill that was passed by the yeah. House. Yeah, correct. I, so that's the frustration, right? So pretty, like we, pretty, pretty good list. Hey, <laughs> so the House has passed Voting Rights Act. The House has passed uh, minimum wage increase. The House has passed protection for reproductive rights. The House has passed uh, legislation around undocumented citizens or undocumented people. And that's all just sitting in the Senate, just sitting in the Senate because of the filibuster, because of Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. I, I guess here, here's here's the, the question I I. Historical patterns tell us that the Democrats are going to have an uphill battle to hold their majority. We know that when a president wins and takes office, uh, they oftentimes lose support in Congress in their second term. The majority in the House is very slim. I believe it's five votes. The majority in the Senate is a tiebreaker for the vice president. All that legislation you talked about that has been passed, some of that can be done by executive order. Some could be put and bundled into a reconciliation bill. Others can't. I, I guess my question here is, is do you feel like your colleagues in the other chamber in the Senate share the same urgency about getting legislation passed in order to hold on to their majority? Because if they lose their majority, Senator Majority Leader McConnell has an agenda that he's going to push through hell or high water. Well, I, I think they should nuke the filibuster, to be honest. I, 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 the, and again, for me, this is less about parliamentary procedure and more about wanting to get stuff done for the people I represent. You know, my sense of most members of the U.S. Senate is they're there also because they want to get stuff done for the people that they represent. So... Um, I have a sense of urgency about that. I particularly have a sense of urgency about that with regard to the voting rights issues because you're seeing state after state take actions that are intended in a very targeted way to impede the ability of people to exercise their franchise. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think Congress should sit back and allow that. 
So um, uh, I'm not a member of the Senate. I, I, I can't sort of dictate what they do. I can tell you as a member of the House, uh, I'm, I'm pleased that we have moved each of these bills. We're in the majority for a reason. And it's, I think, because the American people want us to make this progress on these issues. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, it, my one argument against the filibuster that I wish people would make more clearly to the population is, is that we have 50 states and most of them, in fact, I think only one has anything like a filibuster. And so whatever contrived concerns there are about the majority, we can see in states that doesn't happen. Like getting rid of the filibuster just allows it allows for the public to elect a majority and the majority to actually pass policies instead of what we have right now where the public elects the House and they pass policies and they die in the Senate for no good reason. I think you're right. The, you know, it's, um, I feel like you and I have similar pop culture interests. So I feel like I can say this to you. You may remember the um, uh, 80s John Carpenter film, They Live, oh, yeah. uh, with um the phenomenal thespian Rowdy Rowdy Piper. Rowdy Piper. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you may remember, like, there's a line in it where he says, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, he says, I've come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm fresh out of bubble gum. Yeah. Like, I look at part of my role is I've come here to chew bubble gum and get stuff done. And we're all out of bubble gum. Like, let's start getting some stuff done. Now, we have seen the passage of the American Rescue Plan. We have seen passage of this bipartisan infrastructure bill. But you cannot hear that long list of things that have passed out of the House and haven't moved in the Senate and not say, well, let's go. Let's let's get some of this stuff across the finish line, hey? I, I, I wish the people who do communication for the party would be better about nailing Republicans to the wall on this because every one of those things that you talked about that the House passed, the reason why they're dead in the Senate is, is that every Republican in lockstep, lockstep is voting against them, including Senator Romney, who's voting against the child tax credit that he's in the past that he supported. But that's that's a different conversation. Yeah. All right. For sure. We'll take a break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about health care policy and also listener questions. Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Microsoft. The Puget Sound region is experiencing historic growth. And while this presents a remarkable opportunity for the region, it also creates challenges. Microsoft is committed to our region and everyone in it, working in partnership with the community to improve environmental sustainability, affordable housing, efficient transportation, and high quality education. These issues are fundamentally connected. Smart transportation systems reduce our region's carbon footprint. Affordable housing allows people to live in communities where they work. High-quality education prepares young people for great jobs and a bright future. Our region is remarkably complex and diverse. We need policy solutions that reflect it. This is all part of Microsoft's goal to empower every person and organization in Washington to achieve more. To learn more about Microsoft's work in this area, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. My thanks to Microsoft for their support of Channel 253.
And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. This is a network of podcasts giving points of view and having wonky conversations that you won't get elsewhere. Uh, I think in this conversation we're proving right now, like the amount and of depth we're talking about in bills is not what you get via the local paper or Twitter or anywhere else about legislation. Uh, this show is a effort of love. And if you are enjoying the show, we would love for you to support it by joining Channel 253 as a member. A membership costs $4 a month or $40 a year. All right, Derek, let's let's continue our conversation. Each time that you've been on, we've had conversations about policy and something in going back and listening to both our episodes in the past that came up is healthcare. Each time that a Democrat has taken the White House in my lifetime, they've taken a swing at healthcare. Uh, Clinton went for universal coverage in 1992, and it did not pass. Uh, President Obama made incremental changes, uh, largely for the good with the ACA. President Biden has not, as of yet, taken his swing at health care. My wonder is this. I'm coming and having this conversation right now. I'm in Tacoma, but like I live in UAE. In the Gulf, they've had universal coverage since the 70s. There's a two-track system. If you're Emirati, you basically get Medicare. If you're a guest worker like myself, you get Obamacare or, or Swiss care, whatever you want to call it. And like my copay, if I go to the doctor, is 50 dirham or about $13. That's not where we are. And like that's not if, – if we can't pass the minimum wage, neither of those is being adopted in Congress in the near future. I want to just talk philosophically first, starting from scratch. If our goal was to reach universal coverage, what system would you put in place? So Paul Krugman did, I think, a pretty interesting piece where he said there's not one path to universal coverage. Mm -hmm. And you, you just sort of touched on this. And he pointed out that, for example, you know, in his view, um, if you were starting from scratch, single payer may be the, the fastest way to get there, but we're not starting from scratch. And he points to the Dutch system as one of the best in the world with affordable universal coverage. And he refers to that system as Obamacare done right. And so the question that, you know, as a policymaker and as someone who actually wants to see us get stuff done for the people I represent, you know, I. I try to get it. Okay, so how do we get there with a sense of urgency? Because I am not content with the status quo. I think, mm -hmm. and clearly the pandemic has demonstrated that there are gaps. There are significant gaps in the system. So the question is, if we think that Obamacare done right, in Paul Krugman's view, is the fastest way to get to universal coverage, how do we make sure it's the Affordable Care Act done right? And the approach that I support is one, you got to protect the gains that were made under the Affordable Care Act. And I can tell you from having been, having served in a Republican Congress for a number of years, you know, that was not a fait accompli, right? You had efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. You know, and I think it's worth underscoring what some of those benefits were. Mm -hmm. It prevented insurers from discriminating against people with pre existing conditions, it covered preventive care like mammograms and cancer screenings and even annual physicals without copay. Um, it meant that young people could stay on their parents' insurance until their 26th birthday. Um, it treated illnesses above the neck the same as illnesses below the neck, the so-called mental health uh, parity. You know, and those, I think, represent progress that's worth protecting. That's not just sort of marginal improvement on the system. Those are fundamental improvements on the system. This, the next question, though, is 
how do we build on those gains? And there was, I'll give you a few examples of things that I think make a lot of sense. So there's been a bill called the Pathway to Universal Coverage Act, which would basically automatically enroll people in free healthcare if they qualify for free healthcare. So why is that? Well, um, about half of the uninsured, I think it's about 47% of the uninsured qualify for free healthcare. Uh, either uh, they live in a state um, that hasn't done the Medicaid expansion, um, but would qualify for Medicaid, uh, or um, uh, uh, qualify for free healthcare under the Affordable, uh, Affordable Care Act plans when you take into account the, the tax credits. It would be free. Um, so there's a bill that would say, if you qualify for free healthcare, let's make sure you're enrolled in free healthcare. So that's one. I also support what President, Bi what President Biden has proposed. You know, and listen, the, the good news is we're, we're not waiting for this. This was included in the American Rescue Plan and extending it is included in the Build Back Better Act, which would um, say that um, no more than eight and a half percent of a family's income should have to go to paying for your health care. And so that is actually in the uh, uh, American Rescue Plan that passed at the beginning of this year. Yeah. You also saw an extension of literally millions more Americans getting health care under the American Rescue Plan. Now, some of those benefits will expire, and that's why passing the Build Back Better Act is so important. And then the final thing, and this is what Krugman sort of writes about with regard to the Dutch system, is creating a public option. Um, you know, and there's a variety of of directions you could go with that, but they generally involve having a federal healthcare plan like Medicare that that people could have um, if they wanted. Uh, you know, and that would create competition for private insurance companies that would drive down costs. It would provide an option in areas where private insurers had left the market. And we've seen some of those uh, areas even in our neck of the woods. So those are some things, you know, I would do, I, I think, Often what also gets lost in the conversation around healthcare is prescription drugs. I probably hear about prescription drugs more than I hear about anything else. There are provisions in the Build Back Better Act to make prescription drugs more affordable, including putting a cap on, uh, on um, things like insulin so that people have to pay more than, I think it's 35 bucks for, um, for insulin. Yeah, that would be an enormous game changer for the people that I represent. And that's something that Congress ought to pass. Yeah. Something that you said at the start of that answer is, is that if you were starting from scratch, you would build single payer. But we're not starting from scratch. We're starting in a political environment in which we can't even raise the minimum wage. And so it's what can you get through given the current realities? I, I want to say that because one of the criticisms that I hear oftentimes from, I guess, like your political left is, is that you are not a co-sponsor of uh, Medicare for all legislation. So is your not being a co-sponsor of that legislation a philosophical, I believe in this idea and principle, but understand that it's dead on arrival politically? Or can so, so help help me and help listeners get their head around like that status? Yeah. Well, here's how I look at it. You know, I work on a two-year contract mm -hmm. and my job is to try to get as much stuff done for the people I represent during that two-year period. I mean, the reality is not only is there not support in the U.S. Senate uh, for single-payer 
you may remember we had a presidential election where this issue was pretty front and center. And President Biden actually during the course of that campaign said he wouldn't sign a single payer bill. So I, I, where I have focused my energies is on trying to make as most as much significant progress for the people I represent as possible during the time in which I serve them. That's reasonable. All right. Uh, we're going to move to listener questions. Uh, the first question is from John Murphy. Uh, John, thanks for being a member, by the way. Uh, he's wondering, where do you stand on debt cancellation for students? And what, one thing I'll, I'll cast in this conversation is, is I really dislike the framing that is happening right now around this. Like, the issue is not the debt people took on. Most people could pay back the debt they have. It's the interest. And so mm. I, I just want to just say to, like, folks who are engaging in this, like, the problem folks have is actual interest. And when we say student debt, we're basically capitulating an argument on moral hazard to the political right. So just, just that context out of the way. Uh, where do you stand, though, on interest or debt cancellation for students? I think if it's targeted towards um, based on need, uh, that's something I'd be supportive of to, to a point. Um, you know, and I think it's why President Obama has directed the um, Department of Education to look at what sort of legal options that he has. Um, you know, I've been a very strong proponent of strengthening things like the public service loan forgiveness mm -hmm. program. Um, because that is a way of providing debt relief for people who have gone into jobs that we need them to go into, including education, for example, um, uh, where, uh, you know, that program has not worked the way it was intended. And you've seen the Biden administration take some actions administratively that has meant debt relief for, for thousands and thousands of Americans. I think it's worth zooming out for a second and just acknowledging student debt's a real problem. You know, um, student debt has surpassed credit card debt in this country uh, as the main um, source of debt outside of housing debt. And so, you know, and it, what it means is um, people are constrained in their options. They're constrained in what sort of jobs they can take. It means more and more uh, young people um, and recent college graduates are going back and living with their parents, which as a dad, I can tell you, freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> sure. You know, so what I think is is reasonable to is to look at if there are progressive ways. I don't think we need to provide Bill Gates's kids with debt cancellation. Um, not that they probably took on debt in the first place, but I think there's probably a progressive way of doing this based on need. Um that would make some sense. Beyond that, though, there are some bills that I think make some sense. So, you know, one, um, enabling people to refinance their loans into lower rates is something that I've sponsored legislation on, because to me, it's loopy that um, student debt is one of the few types of debt that you're constrained in your capacity to refinance those loans. I also think that Allowing someone to discharge their student loans in a in a bankruptcy is also important, so that you don't have that debt hanging over your head, uh, even if you've gone into bankruptcy. I do think probably most important, though, is um, to take action to prevent people from having to take on all this debt in the first place. And so, I've been a big proponent of substantially expanding uh, student financial aid on the front end. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I, you know, you, you know this, Nate, my folks were school teachers. I couldn't have done 
to college if it hadn't been for financial aid. I, I got all of it. I got grants and I got loans and occasionally washed dishes in the college dining room, which my wife believes is the best skill that I learned in college. And, um, you know, one of the pieces of the Build Back Better Act is to um, enhance the Pell Grant. I would do it far beyond what's in the Build Back Better Act. I would double the Pell Grant. And in fact, I'm a sponsor of a bill to double the Pell Grant. And then I'd peg it to inflation so that um, as tuition goes up, so, so does financial aid. So that you keep people on the front end from having to take on that much debt in the first place. Yeah. Uh, two two follow ups. One, research tells us that like forty percent of the people who have student loan debt actually never graduated. And so, would you support targeted relief for them? I I, I would. Um, again, particularly based on financial need. And then related follow up. So going back to the point I started off with about the idea that. When we're talking about student debt, the issue is not principal, it's really interest. Yeah. If a magical standalone bill came along that said something about like, we're going to have an interest holiday on the student loans for people whose household income is below $50,000 or something like that. Is that a piece of legislation you would support and push through Congress? Well, I think it's worth recognizing you've seen some support for things like a interest holiday, as you put it, because of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, even in you can go back to pandemic relief bills that passed with bipartisan support and you had not just Democrats, but you had some Republicans even voting to support pressing pause on interest accrual. And so I think in a targeted way, there's um, some benefit to that. The, I, I mentioned the Student Loan Refinancing Act that I've sponsored in the past really tries to get at this interest issue that, that you're raising. All right. Next listener question is from Mark Heinzman. Mark, thank you for being a member. Um, can you explain what the House Modernization Committee actually is? Like you're working yeah. as chair of it. Uh, what are the tangible, tangible, tangible? What are the tangible changes that are coming out of that committee? So about every 20 or 30 years or so, Congress realizes things aren't working the way they ought to, and they create a committee to do something about it. And this uh, Congress's iteration of that is the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which makes us sound like we're the IT help desk, uh, which is unfortunate, but we've been nicknamed the Fixed Congress Committee. Um, usually when I say that, people offer to pray for me. So um, thank you for your prayers, listeners. Um, but we were assigned to look at a number of issues, all with an eye toward making Congress work better for the American people. We were assigned the task of looking at things like how can Congress do a better job of recruiting and retaining and having more diverse staff, which is important because you've seen a tremendous turnover in staff um, within the Congress. And as a consequence, um, nature abhors a vacuum. And when uh, competent, capable staff people leave, um, what too often fills that void is lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't serve the interests of the American people. So a big part of our focus has been on changes that can be made to recruit, retain, and have more diverse staff. Um, part of what we've been assigned to look at is how Congress uses technology. Uses technology. Congress has been described as an 18th century institution using 20th century technology to solve 21st century problems. And I think that's pretty true. And you know, we know that Congress can be useful in terms of solving problems, in terms of uh, communicating with constituents, and all sorts of other things, including even data analytics and the like, and Congress is really behind on that front. And so 
part of our focus has been on that. We've been assigned the topic of looking at rules and procedures. And so we've, just as an example, passed some recommendations related to the budget and appropriations process so that um, you have a process that isn't so dysfunctional uh, as it has been in recent years. Um, if you look at the history of these, so, and I'll, I'll mention one other thing that we've been looking at, but if you look at the history of these select committees, more often than not, they haven't really done anything. They haven't even, in some instances, passed any recommendations. If you look at the last um, sort of reform committee was the uh, Joint Select Committee on Budget and Appropriations Process Reform. It passed zero recommendations. Uh, prior to that, um, you had the Super Committee on Debt and Deficit Reduction, which passed zero recommendations. Uh, our committee, as we sit here today, has passed, I, I want to say, uh, somewhere around 120, 130 recommendations. And importantly, about 60% of them we've made, we've either gotten implemented or are, are on some step of the process toward implementation, which I think is a pretty big deal. We, we've made a decision, one, that we didn't want to make a report. We wanted to make change. Um, I feel like when I say that, it's like that Saturday Night Live skit, you know, the bank that only makes change. We make change. It's what we do. Um, but we've been able to pass a number of recommendations and actually implement some of those recommendations, including some things around the budget and appropriations process and around uh, around staffing. Um, very recently, right before Christmas, we've passed some recommendations related to something that I think is on the minds of a lot of Americans, and that is just the level of incivility and dysfunction in Congress. I think it can be disheartening to watch what's happening in Congress and feel like you're watching the Jerry Springer show. And so some of what we dug in on and actually made some recommendations on was trying to reduce the level of dysfunction in Congress. You know, and some of it's just simple, easy stuff, Nate. Like I'll give you an example. Um, freshman orientation. When you show up in Congress, there is freshman orientation, just like if you go to school and there's freshman orientation. And literally from the beginning, freshman orientation is um, segmented by party. You literally, I mean, literally you show up and there was one bus for Democrats and one bus for Republicans. And much of the orientation process seemed to be an exercise in trying to keep Democrats and Republicans from talking to each other. And so one of our recommendations was stop doing that. You know, like let's, you know, I, I talked to a sports coach um, who had taken over a pretty dysfunctional team. And I said, you know, so what? Do you, how do you fix a broken team? And he said, you, you, you start with how you orient your new team members. Well, Congress orients new team members currently in a way that um, exacerbates the dysfunction. So one of our recommendations was to, to stop doing that. There's a number of other things that we've uh, made recommendations on related to sort of trying to foster some civility and increase the functionality of Congress. But those are um, some things that I think folks might find interesting. I think the next two questions I want to combine because they both come from a pessimistic place. And so okay. essentially, uh, Rob Huff and Joel Anderson are both asking about pieces of legislation that are part of Build Back Better, but then mm -hmm. presuming that Build Back Better might not make it to the Senate. And okay. so I'll start with Rob's question first, and then we'll go to Joel's. Uh, he would love to hear what you think the chances are that the housing dollars from Build Back Better, if it cannot pass through the Senate, being separated and passing uh, as a standalone bill. 
And then Joel is asking the same thing about child tax credit. So let's imagine the Senate can't get their stuff together. Mansion keeps mansioning it. Uh, what are your thoughts about passing uh, the housing money and the child tax credit as standalone bills? I think both are really important. Um, I wish I, you know, I'm a genetically hopeful person. I couldn't be in this job if I wasn't. Um, having said that, uh, you know, if you look at funding for housing, and that's what the Build Back Better Act, you know, it's both for affordable housing construction, it's for uh, funding to housing authorities, and I'm going to go visit with the Tacoma Housing Authority later today, um, so that they can deal with uh, refurbishment of existing stock, stock and also services to people who are within public housing. And the third, it's a rental assistance. Unfortunately, historically, you have not seen a tremendous amount of bipartisan support for that. And so in a filibuster world of the Senate, um, uh, you know, there's a reason that provision was included in a reconciliation bill. Reconciliation only has to pass with 50 votes or 51, including the vice president. There's a reason for that. And it's because historically we haven't been able to get Republican support for that level of investment in affordable housing. I, I think it's just critical. I, I, it is, we need far more affordable housing stock. We knew we had a, a housing issue prior to the pandemic. Um, it is much, much worse um, uh, because of the pandemic. And I, I think this is you know, one of the most important things that Congress could do. And I'm hopeful that we get the Build Back Better passed with those provisions included. Child tax credit, um, uh, you have seen some bipartisan support for the child tax credit, uh, including for refundability. But I don't know that you'll get 60 votes in the U.S. Senate uh, uh, for it as a standalone bill. You know, this is something that, you know, there are members who predate my tenure in Congress have been working on this for, for decades. And finally, as part of the American Rescue Plan at the beginning of this year, you saw uh, it included and it had a profound impact on child poverty in this country. Um, and it had a profound benefit to a lot of families who've been struggling to make ends meet. And uh, so I think it's really important. I wish I could tell you I was confident that it would um, pass even without the Build Back Better Act. Um, to me, it underscores the importance of getting the Build Back Better Act passed uh, and signed by President Biden. You've said the word Build Back Better Act about 400 times in this interview. What does your gut say so as we're having this conversation, there are media reports that Senator Manchin is now open to negotiations again. Uh, what does your gut say about the possible – Doug, your face. <laughs> Sorry. Doug just gave me the most sarcastic face I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, what does is, what is your gut say about whether the uh, party is going to be able to get this thing done in the new year? I think we're going to get something done. I really do. And I think, again, part of it is um, – on members of Congress to articulate to their constituents what's in this and how it benefits them, right? I think so much of the focus um, has been on the sort of the negotiations that what's gotten lost in this is how you will benefit from it. You will benefit when your healthcare costs go down. You will benefit when you're able to have accessible, affordable childcare. You will benefit when your family can get the child tax credit. You'll benefit by seeing investments in affordable housing and in expanding the Pell Grant. All of these things are in the Build Back Better Act. You'll benefit when we take 
profound and significant action against the climate crisis. Listen, I, I represent um, a district that is fueling the impacts of climate change. I represent 11 Native American tribes, uh, 12 after redistricting, four of whom are coastal tribes that, as we sit here, are in the process of trying to move to higher ground mm. because of persistent flooding and more severe storms, not to mention the threat of tsunami. You know, I represent 3,200 people whose livelihoods are tied to shellfish and, and fisheries. They are seeing uh, changing ocean chemistry impact their jobs. And so um, taking action against the climate crisis, I think, is, uh, is uh, uh, incredibly, incredibly important. And listen, you know, it may not be in the way that I support and in the way that was initially proposed by President Biden. But if we can still make important progress against the climate crisis, that'll be progress worth making. All right. Uh, our exit question, total change of pace. Yeah. Book of Boba Fett. I'm all in. So, uh, yeah. So <laughs> we had one episode. What'd you think? I'm all in. So I I, I feel like I should say this about um, all Star Wars content. Yeah. And that is, I don't watch it as a critic. I watch it as a fan. And um, uh, I... I uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, after all of these years, finding out how he got out of the Sarlacc pit. I'm all in. What'd you think? So it's interesting to me because Boba Fett has been this, like, enigma, like, super character my entire adult life who I always wanted to know more about, always wanted to know more about. And now I'm learning more about, and I'm wondering, is learning more about Boba Fett going to be seeing, is, is, like, seeing the magic trick and have the trick explained to you? And so I, I enjoyed the episode, but I'm, I'm nervous about the rest of the season. The, the one thing I'll say is, is it, I, I'm... I'm wondering how they're going to execute this show without a Baby Yoda-type character. Like, Baby Yoda basically is what made The Mandalorian popular last season. Uh, how are they going to navigate that? But, like, I, but I, I, was, I was enraptured by the first episode. I'm looking forward to further episodes for sure. I'm all in. <laughs> season pass, dude. I'm all in. I, I, when I land in the States, I sign up for Disney+, Plus, and then when I leave, I cancel it. So I'll be back for the summer to watch the rest. <laughs> Uh, can you not watch it over there? You know, I can watch it over there, and I, I have a service, but it's more fun to do it this way. Just like you come home, like I'm home, I'm going to binge this in the evenings. It's 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 a treat. Uh, I want to thank you for making time in this conversation. I want to thank you for answering questions that are complicated about issues that impact our community. I also want to thank you for the fact you highlight community members in places that we don't hear a lot about. Like you constantly talk about the Olympic Peninsula. Like you talk about shellfish, I think about hump tulips. You talk about the Native American tribes, I think about Nia Bay and my experience with Macaw people. And so I want to thank you for your advocacy for those people who don't always get heard in conversations. In prior episodes, you talked about uh, rural hospitals closing. I think my in-laws in Mason County. And so thank you for that work. You bet. Thanks for having me. And thanks to your listeners. And uh, if you had a question that we didn't get to, feel free to pop me a question through uh, my website. Um, I also do an email newsletter every couple of weeks just to let folks know what the heck is going on back there. If they want to get it, um, they can sign up through my website. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm trying to raise my Instagram game, Nate. Uh, so um if you have an enterprising high schooler who can help me with that. <laughs> oh, I have one. several. I have a young lady from Pakistan who does like awesome graphic design. I'll connect you all. Right on. All right. Uh, well, Conver, y'all, thank you for listening today. Uh, go Sounders. If you are eligible for a booster, go get a booster. It's your job to prevent the spread of COVID and prosecute and convict the police that killed Manuelos. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. 
Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.